Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. Hiya. This is episode 17, the second half of our discussion of Encounter at Farpoint, the first two episodes, the first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Just as a quick recap, for those of you who perhaps didn't listen to our first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, here's a brief summary. In 2364, almost 70 years after the events of The Undiscovered Country, the new flagship of the Federation, the USS Enterprise-D, with Captain Jean-Luc Picard, sets off on its maiden voyage. Intent on picking up the rest of the new crew and negotiating a treaty with the Bandy, a mysterious race who built the station, the Enterprise is halted en route by an omnipotent being that identifies himself as Q. Q claims that humans are a savage race who do not belong in space. Picard offers to undergo a trial to determine humanity's readiness to engage with other species. But before we get into that, are you ready for another aside? Yes, I am. We talked about this off mic. Star Trek is definitely a franchise that lends itself to various different kinds of asides, just because it's so much. It sprawls all over pop culture. There are so many different characters. It's hard not to to bring in other things. It's another thing that I think is really different from Star Wars. Star Wars is very insular in many ways, but Star Trek is not. Now, I mentioned a show that I watched in syndication in our last episode. And it's been an entire week, so it's entirely possible that somebody listened to that already has recalled, remembered, or realized what I have. Something about what I told you about, about the the syndicated modern retelling of Around the World in 80 Days bothered me. That's because it's not. The character, by the way, is known as Phineas Bogg with a B. Oh, no. This is This is a show called Voyagers. It was it was a one-season wonder. I'm still trying to figure out why John Wesley ships The Flash and this show Voyagers, both of which were short-lived shows, ended up on syndication. I think just things were different back then. I don't know. But this was a show from 1982. So Phineas Bogg is the main character. He is from a society of time travelers. Ooh, time traveling in Jules Verne. Right. So Phineas Fogg and his young, you know, like a Dick Grayson kind of short round, you know, that kind of situation. They go back in time to fix things that have broken, which means this is an early forerunner of Quantum Leap, Timeless, other shows that are based around the idea of Writing wrongs in time. It kind of sounds like a Doctor Who ripoff. Well, legends. Right. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah. There's the rest of the story on that particular aside. I mean, I feel like Star Trek as a show begs for asides because of the place it holds in pop culture and all of the different moving pieces that usually go into a Star Trek property. Right. And, And I mean, one of the things, too, about Star Trek The Next Generation being seen in syndication is that by its very nature means it was seen in different times and even days, depending on where you lived, right? Right. It's like 
It's like Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. They're always on somewhere, but that somewhere and that some when depends on. Right. And unless you were like an early adopter of this show, most people experience this in syndication out of order for right. the most part, too. So there, there is also that aspect of it. I think syndication, since we learned that revelation that the average watcher of the CW is 58 years old. Oh, my God. And that is a broadcast, not of the shows, but a broadcast. I think syndication is kind of maybe dead. <laughs> uh, and But, you know, like the last great gasps of syndication in its successful period were more half-hour comedies like The Simpsons, Seinfeld, Frasier, the latter two of which I only ever really watched in syndication. One of the things that I mentioned near the end of the last episode was that I thought that this particular episode, episodes, two-part TV movie are clever because they're introducing us to so many new characters, but they make it part of the plot that the first half of the characters are going to pick up the other half of the characters, this new crew that they're assembling on the Enterprise, and that allows us to kind of get to know the first half of the characters before we get to know the second half of the characters. Before you mentioned that that's what you thought was going on, I just thought it was awkward. <laughs> really? You thought that that was an awkward structure? I mean, not anymore now that I understand the bit. I mean, it's such a large ensemble cast. I mean, much larger than the original series. I mean, but that didn't stop them from introducing characters and doing absolutely nothing with them. I, I mean, don't that's know why fair. that's... <laughs> but let's go ahead and talk about some of the other characters that we meet in this episode or set of episodes. So we've already talked about last episode, Jean-Luc Picard, Deanna Troy, Data... Tasha Yar, Worf, and Miles O'Brien, although again, he's not actually called Miles O'Brien in this episode. He won't get a name or more of a role until later. So let's talk about the other person we hear doing a log, a first officer's log in this case. Let's talk about William T. Riker. Is this the first time that, because I don't recall this happening on our grandpappy's Enterprise with Kirk, is this the first time number one has been used? No. The first time number one was used was actually in the original TOS pilot because it's what Pike calls his first officer who doesn't have a name in the menagerie. But in Strange New Worlds, you'll notice that even though she right. now does have a name, Una, that she is still referred to as number one by Pike as a nickname. So yes. that feels like a reference back to the menagerie. But Kirk doesn't use number one. No. Does he even have a number one? Spock. Because, well, but Spock is the, the technology officer. But he's also the first officer. Okay. It's kind of a dual role. You know, Spock, he right, wears right, a right. lot of hats. Right, That which allows us the joke of that guy being demoted twice. Right, in yeah. The, in in the, the motion picture. That, the, the motion picture, which shall not be named. Yeah, I mean, like, this character feels like a blank canvas. I love him so much. Well, the, I mean, I know he's not. Because, like, again, I've seen him in Picard. I am aware that this character goes on a journey. But, you know, blank canvases go on journeys, too. That's how they become art. So William T. Riker is played by Jonathan Frakes, who is most well-known, I believe, in Star Trek for this role. 
but obviously becomes just intertwined with the creation of Star Trek because he goes on to direct and write so many episodes of both this show and subsequent shows. I don't believe, besides the original series, I don't believe that there is a Star Trek show that he has not directed an episode of. So, you know, in in many, it's true in films, but in television as well. This is where the Mary Sue comes from as a construct. A lot of times you'll find characters who are meant to be, you know, sometimes you have characters who are the author insert, but more often you have a character who is meant to be your entry, right, into the universe. And the Mary Sue is the version of that, but it is so blank that you can find yourself within that character. So, you know, sometimes that works to a detriment, but other times there's a character who is a character. That's It's not necessarily, you know, somebody that you feel like you can embody. They're so blank, but they're undeveloped. There's a difference. And these characters are undeveloped because they are meant to be your way of feeling like you're starting a story or a journey alongside that person. They will grow and develop in the way that we know that Riker does. This character feels to me like the accessible entry point into the series because you have to think about, well, okay, not everybody's going to be an empath. So Hmm. no, okay, that's not going to work. Uh, Klingon, okay, that's not going to work. And, and okay, not an android, okay, that's not going to work either. Not an annoying child, okay, okay. But Picard would be our entry point as the main character. But as I said in the last episode, he's so closed off, we don't have access to that person. He is somebody, and, and he's like Pike in that way, even though he's much more of a, Pike is much more friendly. Like the time that we spend with him is time that we learn more about him and get to know him more. There isn't a character that we enter in with in Strange New Worlds, but I think that's what Riker accomplishes in The Next Generation because he's definitely that character who's new to everything, knows Starfleet, like people who saw the original series do, but is like, doesn't know these people, doesn't know their dynamics. And is the new guy, just like we are. You know, so when I say he's a blank canvas, I'm not being mean about it. I'm saying he's a character we can immediately identify with. And I also think that of all these characters at the beginning of the series, he is also supposed to be our link back to Kirk as a character. Because he has the William T. Riker middle initial, that's supposed to tell us that we still have the young, sexy Starfleet officer that... Kirk was, even though he's not the captain of this Enterprise. Yeah, at least somebody on this ship bangs. (laughs) Yes, Riker definitely bangs. But we do know a couple of things about Riker going into this, or we discover a couple of things about Riker coming into this. Are you saying we make discoveries? Oh, my God. One, the only person he knew before this was Deanna Troy. He had a prior romantic relationship with her, the extent of which is not really known. What did you think about the introduction of this relationship? Yikes. Yeah. Awkward. Oh, you feel like this is awkward. It was, it was, it was awkward. I, I mean, their relationship is very important in the show, what? but the, it feels a little ham-fisted here. Well, yeah, it's just supposed to be awkward. 
We, we raise the awkward flag at this moment. And I know that because there is another relationship that is revealed. And, and that one is more serious. That one matters. It has stakes. To me, I just felt like this was like, oh, small universe. Am I right? And it does feel a little weird, too. And this might be more of a testament to Deanna Troy's character and how she develops. Because there is that really awkward scene near the end where Riker tells her to go back to the ship and she like freaks out because she thinks he's going to be hurt, which doesn't feel like something a Starfleet officer would do. It kind of just gives us this moment where Riker is just like, you have your orders, counselor. Not a, not a fan of this character. Yeah, I keep telling you. It, it's kind of awkward and weird. The other thing we learn about William T. Riker is that while he is very dedicated to the idea of the captain and protecting the captain, he almost takes that a little too far. In fact, Picard, when he talks to Riker and is kind of like, you know how like when somebody is like, already got the job and you didn't choose them, but you're kind of like interviewing them after the fact, that's kind of what's happening in this episode. And Picard brings up an incident from Riker's last position as an officer where he didn't let the captain beam down into a dangerous situation. And he brings that up again. And Riker straight up tells him, like, if I think a situation is too dangerous, it's my job to deal with it. You're the captain. You have to stay safe. What did you think about this interaction and the fact that Picard basically hazes him by having him do the saucer reunification, (laughs) but manually? I have never seen an American president full on bodyguard jump in front of the president. (laughs) That's not a real thing. I mean, I get it in context of the episode. It actually is supposed to tell us a lot about Riker's character, bravery, blah, 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 blah. But it's like, that is not a tradition I'm I'm aware of. Actually, it's kind of the opposite. It's (laughs) like, uh, can we get rid of this guy? Hey, guys. Hey, my dudes. Come get this guy. Oh, wait. That didn't happen? It did, guys. Come on. Well, I think it's also supposed to tell us that the dynamic between Riker and Picard is very different from the last first officer captain dynamic we had, which is Spock and Kirk. I'm sorry, Tessa. I'm so sorry. There are no thruples on this show. Not yet, anyway. Tessa, stop trying to make thruples happen. (laughs) No obvious ones so far, at least. All right, so let's move on to the other member, new members of the crew that were waiting on Farpoint Station for the Enterprise to arrive. Yes, a bevisored reading rainbow. Right, let's talk about Jordi LaForge, played by, of course, LeVar Burton, everyone's favorite icon of literacy everywhere. I also watched Reading Rainbow as a child. However, I just thought that Jordi LaForge was doing a reading program. That's how can, young I can was. We, can we just... Note the irony of the theme song. Take a look. <laughs> no, that's it. That was the only that was, it? that was ironic. What did you think about this introduction of Jordi LaForge? You remember the whole thing with Give LeVar Burton Jeopardy? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously that job is, he is better than that job is what we learned. But part of the reason why he is well suited to that job is that he was a presenter on another TV show. That's presenter. That's British for host. Anyway, <laughs> he, had, he had done that kind of job before. 
and the Literacy King of America doing a a, a quiz show. It kind of makes sense. But I think the thing that qualified LeVar Burton most for a job like that is that you are, if you grew up with him, as I did, he's just welcome in my life. I'm not going to pull a full, you know, Troy from Community, but if I met him, I would be just, wow, that guy's real and he's standing in front of me. I wouldn't have had a full meltdown. I'm happy for him to be there. He's immediately my favorite character just because it's LeVar Burton. Now, (laughs) but that's not what you asked me. You asked me about LaForge the character. And the one really interesting thing that we get out of this first episode, and there's going to be lots of more interesting things other than the fact that it is LeVar Burton underneath that visor, is that the visor causes pain. And he has been presented with a binary choice. And he chooses the pain. Right, because he says that if he took traditional painkillers or did surgery to deaden parts of his, the nerves in certain parts of his brain, that he wouldn't be able to use the visor as well. Which, by the way, this is at once both a reference to pharmaceuticals that either do or are perceived to have their effects dampened over time, which is real in some cases and not in others. But also the idea that taking something like antidepressants will make you less of the person you are, which is definitely a narrative that was wholesale accepted as truth. I think until recently, I think that most people still have that in their minds. But I mean, there's been a lot of pushback against it recently. So it's an interesting character development, but it's based on something that is perhaps a little problematic. Yeah, and I mean, this was the 80s, so we weren't thinking about these things. It was the 80s. We weren't thinking about a lot critically. But even having a sighted character play a blind character we know now is a little problematic, to say the least. Although, I think that this particular iteration of blindness is actually pretty well well done. That reminds me about... It reminds me of Sound of Metal. Yes. Right? Like, the whole issue of of Riz Ahmed being cast to play that but the difference here is I think what's really interesting about Sound of Metal is that most of us who knew a little about a cochlear implant received a real shock at the end of that movie about what it what it means and and so I when you say this about this LaForge character I think about the cochlear implant, because it doesn't seem like what the visor does is like it's not analogous. No, like, it's not. The at visor all. is not like a cochlear implant is to hearing because the cochlear implant's apparently completely different from what we think about as hearing. And the visor is not that way. So I I as you say, I think maybe it's not as problematic as it could be that, you know, a sighted actor is playing this character. Right. And we do get a hint, too, in this episode, especially I think it's at the end when they're exploring the ruins, that he can see, see, in quotation marks, because he uses, like, infrared and ultraviolet light. Like, he can... He can he is, he is the predator. He can analyze things <laughs> with his visor that people couldn't with their eyesight. I'm sorry, he's the Terminator and the Predator. Right, like he's able to say like, 
that's what this is this wall is made of or whatever just by like looking at it so he's able to process that information in ways that like a sighted person wouldn't be able to do but he suffers from chronic pain he suffers from chronic pain and he talk when he's talking to crusher when she's doing the intake of him onto the enterprise we learn that he has been blind from birth that he was born blind which seems to be a not usual occurrence in the Federation, which, as we know, is advanced medically to the point where a lot of disabilities have seemingly been erased, which has its own problems that I won't get into as a as a utopia. But it is interesting that, like, this isn't common. People aren't walking around with these visors. Like, he is definitely, like, a special case. She's heard about him, but she hasn't actually seen the visor and how it works. As an aside, since we're, we're talking about asides here, if you haven't listened to LeVar Burton's podcast where he reads short fiction, do yourself a favor, check it out. Just hearing his voice read different parts of short fiction, it's just the like most soothing, calming thing, especially if you listen to reading Rainbow as a kid. Like It's going to bring back like this childhood like being read to type of feeling, and I, I think it's excellent. He also promotes a lot of the work of POC writers, which I don't think get a lot of attention. Very briefly, podcast within a podcast, Sam, the literacy expert. Hi, in case you don't know this, I'm actually a literacy expert. <laughs> it's true. It's not a joke. It's where the doctor comes in. I, I will just say one little note on LeVar Burton. If you are nostalgic and you love reading Rainbow, that's great. Let me put the mortar board on for a second and tell you that the single biggest detriment that a child can have in terms of early literacy is the lack of being read to. If you had parents who read you bedtime stories, you know, a grandparent who sat on their knee when you were a child and they read to you, that is what made you more than any other singular thing made you the reader that you are today. Children who do not have that, which, surprise, surprise, is more prevalent in communities of color because of economic disadvantages that lead to the inability to have that early sponsor of literacy. You know, kids are left more on their own when parents have to work more hours, more part-time jobs, and so on. Children who do not have that early access to reading, by the time they hit the fourth grade, will be so far behind in literacy because you can't catch up without major intervention if you miss that pre-kindergarten or kindergarten level era of literacy, that by the time they hit the fourth grade, their story has pretty much already been written in terms of literacy. In fact, that same statistic that I just cited is the one that is used to figure out how much prison space will be needed in the near future, which is wrong. Yeah, I was horrified when I yeah. learned that statistic. The reason that Reading Rainbow exists is that LeVar Burton and friends at the PBS... We're trying to find a way to deal with this. And so it's no accident what Reading Rainbow does and was meant to do. Eventually, governments, state and national, decided that maybe one man with a television show, along with Fred, Fred Rogers, should not be responsible for this. 
that if you've heard of universal pre-K or earlier, like in the 90s, if you heard about Head Start, that's what this is meant to be. Close this podcast within a podcast to say that LeVar Burton is a true American hero right up there with Johnny Appleseed and Paul Bunyan, except he's real and he did real good. And Fred Rogers. And Big Bird. And Big Bird, yes. HBO Max, we hate you. I watched all of those. I I remember Reading Rainbow would come on after Sesame Street. You know who's not an American hero? Zazlov. Did you enjoy that podcast within a podcast? I did. I really liked that because, yeah, I think I knew all those pieces of information individually, but until you said them all just now, it makes a lot more sense to me. There is no accident that another one of the lyrics to Reading Rainbow is, I can be anything. Right, exactly. I know you're thinking about, you know, inhabiting worlds when you read, but it also is the mission statement of the show. And especially because at that time, like you said, we talked about latchkey kids in the last episode, the idea that children were coming home and just watching television by themselves, that this all makes sense to me. All right, moving on from our faith, LeBar Burton, who I think we will talk about a lot during this series. The last two characters that we meet on <laughs> Farpoint Station are, of course, the Crushers, Beverly and Wesley. I, first of all, I just want to say, I want an oral history of the decision-making process behind naming this woman Crusher. <laughs> because, come on. What did you think about Beverly Crusher as a character, her relationship to Picard, which we find out in this episode, and as the new doctor of the Enterprise? I know you're going to be shocked. I don't think there's any good character development done. I think in the most second wave feminist of terms that Bev Crusher is defined as Wesley's mother, the other to Picard, stepping in the shoes of Bones, who appears in the episode. Right. Literally nothing happens in my mind in this episode that establishes her as a person absent her relationships with men. That's true. I'm not saying it was done on purpose. That's just the way things were done back then. And I said that's at my most second wave essential. And for all the talk about how Star Trek is queer, this ain't. I mean, the thing about relationships is that is the easiest way to establish characterization quickly. But when you do it at an expense, at the expense of developing a woman's character, you're falling into some well-worn, not good habits. Yeah, and I I should mention also that this character is played by Gates McFadden. Since I've been mentioning all the other actors on this, she's probably most well-known for this role. I agree with you that she's defined mostly in her relationships with Wesley and Picard. Although, I do think it is interesting that as a character, we find out that Picard was the captain of the ship that her husband, Wesley's father, was on, and that Picard is the one who brought her husband's body back and broke the news that he had died. Once again, using another person, this time dead, to establish her identity. Right. But what I think is interesting, most interesting about this character in this episode is that she, of all of them, all of them are, are just kind of in awe. They don't know Picard very well. And so they're all kind of cowed by his 
authoritarianism, his patriarchal kind of demeanor that he has in this episode. Of all of these characters, she is the one who is least afraid of him. And she is the one who calls him on his sh- on the bridge of this of a starship for treating her son badly. Right. This again is a shorthand to develop characterization. It's impossible not to notice. However, of the two, Wesley has the most independent characterization in this episode. I know more about him as a person than I do his mom. Although we also do know, before we move to Wesley, we also do know that she is a career woman. She values her career because when Picard does come talk to her and says, if you would rather be transferred off of this because of my relationship with your husband, I would understand. And she's like, why? This is like the best post. Like, why would I let that get in the way of me and my career? Right. So I we do get that little yeah. little thing, but I think you're absolutely I'm just pointing right. Pointing out, no one else has that happen. In oh this no, episode. no, no! You are absolutely right about what happens with her. Otherwise, well, let's talk about Wesley. Wesley, the smartest person and also the most idiotic at the same time. He is a real contradiction. He is ready to step in that captain's chair and get this party started, but still trips over his own feet like an idiot. <laughs> so. Obviously, this character is played by Will Wheaton. I have never seen Stand By Me. Did that come out before this or after? Uh, Right around the same time. I want to say Stand By Me is 86 or 87. I'm looking it up right now. I'm vamping. I'm vamping. It was 86, (laughs) same year. Who's Who's the queen? queen? So this is an interesting development because, like you said, this show is trying to differentiate itself from the original series. It is trying to have a new paradigm for who is on the ship and who isn't on the ship. What do you think about the decision to have an actual child as a main character of this ensemble show in Star Trek? I feel like George Lucas saw Wesley Crusher and was like, you know what? I can make a character more annoying than that kid. (laughs) Just you wait. He's an interesting mix of precocious and naive. Well, I mean, it's impossible. Okay, listen. I've watched many a season of Family Guy. I am aware of the internet. And so therefore, I know that at some point, Wesley is going to be told to shut up. And (laughs) it's going to be the greatest moment in this show. You're going to really love it. Right. So... You know, like, I know these things. So it's impossible to come at this character with a blank slate. Like, I was predisposed to liking LaForge because it's the nice man from my childhood. This is the opposite of that, right? This kid's an idiot. And he is. To be fair, and knowing, having zero idea of how this plays out in the rest of the series. So I'm just going to watch that and be surprised. I know that this character is meant to be the future of Starfleet, to which, oh God, oh no, poor Starfleet. But actually, this kid's going to be where it's at, right? Because he is a child. Children are stupid. That's just the way it is. But he is also very intelligent and has learned a lot about the role of uh, the various roles on the starship. If you're going to have a child character, it should be this character. 
And he's the one who notes the proximity alarm on the bridge before right. anybody else does. Right. And he like, but he like automatically pushes the button and does like gives the order. And he's like, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to. And Picard is like horrified. Right. What are you doing? And he's horrified by children in general, though. Right. So it's like double horror. It's double great. horror. I have to say, and watching. Double barreled horror. <laughs> double barreled horror. 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 So. I have to say, just in defense of Wesley, I guess. It's not really a defense. I thought I did a pretty good job no, of you, defending No, you him. did. I guess I have to say that my my relationship with Wesley is a little different because I was a child when I was first watching this show. And so for me- You too were an idiot. I, I too was an idiot. But like you you talked about how William T. Riker is the- I, I'm going to call him that for this episode. And then afterwards, it's just going to be Riker. Oh, thank God. So so I, I, you said that he is the audience's entry point into this. For me as a child, it was Wesley, right? Because oh, Wesley- I'm so sorry. Was the one that I was closest to. And it was always like, wow, like, you know, I could be- on the you bridge. can be told to shut up by Picard <laughs> when you grow up. Exactly. And so, like, I have a bit of a different relationship. Obviously, I can see how insufferable Wesley is now as an adult. But I also I also feel bad for Will Wheaton while watching this because he is negotiating an absolutely impossible to please role here. There was no way that this role was going to be well liked so, by anyone. Here's here's what we need to do. Here, here's the real question. At some point during the next however long we're talking about Star Trek The Next Generation, at some point you really do need to see Stand By Me. Because the challenge to you would be to imagine as Wesley Crusher, River Phoenix, or Corey Feldman, or Jerry O'Connell, who also had sliders, his own. American sci-fi TV show, or Kiefer Sutherland. Actually, Kiefer Sutherland really doesn't belong with those others, but he was in that movie. The real trick is, is to imagine if that character was written and acted the same way, I think O'Connell would have come across as annoying. I think the role might have looked different with a River Phoenix, for sure, who played famously young Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. Oh, that would have been so good. Actually, I'm trying to remember the name of the kid who played him, the Sean, who played him in um, the young Indiana Jones TV series. That would have been an interesting casting choice. Corey Feldman, and I'll throw you in Corey Haim too, just for funsies. Corey Feldman would have been an interesting Wesley Crusher. So the, the challenge is, is to think about his contemporaries and who else might have inhabited that role and how it might have played out differently. My point to you is, I agree. I don't think it's Will Wheaton's fault. I think that there are other actors who would have, I think, suffered as much as he did. I think there are some actors, again, River Phoenix is an example, who I think his charisma and presence would have fought against the characterization so it would have played out completely differently but you know will Wheaton did his job which he has talked about before as being he's talked about this in interviews about child stardom he's talked about how if you're a working child actor you shut up and you hit your mark right and that's kind of 
what happens on this show is that he's doing what he's told to do. Right. And he's also talked about how he's been bullied for this role. Yeah. And I mean, just to go back to River Phoenix one more time, I think that, you know, as we learn more more about this, you know, Alex Winter did the great uh, documentary. That's what I was thinking about. That's where the interview yeah. with Will Wheaton Alex is. Alex Winter would have been an interesting Wesley Crusher, too. That's true. Bill and Ted meet Star <laughs> Trek. Whoa. <laughs> Can we agree that Ted would have been the best engineer? Oh, 100%. Yeah. You put him with like a Scotty analog and you think they're about to murder each other. It's like the it's the the Sesame Street thing you were telling me about. Cookie Monster and the other Muppet who run the... The food truck? Yeah. Yeah. Ted would be like the Cookie Monster <laughs> in that case. No, um, just to finish the thought about River Phoenix, I, I, I don't obviously know any of these people. But I get the feeling that River Phoenix as a personality is somebody who could not live with that child actor mentality. And, you know, and I have a feeling he's somebody who was able to advocate for himself, but was ultimately, you know, conquered by it. But I say this partially because I think that's why Joaquin Phoenix is such a monster. Because he was, for better or for worse, I'm guessing, this is all armchair psychology, but I am thinking he was enabled by his family to stand up for himself, and he did so. Boy, did somebody need to stand up to him, right? If for no other reason, we wouldn't have Joker. That is absolutely I th- true. I think Casey Affleck is another example of that. Well, yeah, that and because both of, those because names... of Because of Ben, he was right. able to... You know, so it takes a lot for a child actor to be able to do a job well. And we're, we're recording this the week after the uh, McCurdy... Uh, memoir. I'm glad my I'm glad my mom is mom dead. Is dead. Yeah. So I mean, like, which was a Nickelodeon thing, right? Yeah. There's no winning here, right? Is the point, and I think that at best you come out of it scarred, and hopefully you can have a career, which Will Wheaton has had, and at worst, you end up like River Phoenix. I just, for me, when I watch this show now, and this will probably come up again as we watch more episodes of the show, I try to be as charitable as possible towards this character. And I I don't feel like many people allow themselves to be charitable because it's such low-hanging fruit to make fun of this character. Oh, I'm going to laugh at him and make fun of him at every single opportunity, but hopefully you understand, because I'm not going to go on this aside every single time. Right. That doesn't, that is not a reflection. If anything, it's a positive reflection on Will Wheaton, right? Because mm-hmm. he was, because he did the thing. I mean, the thing about it is, too, and this goes back to drama versus comedy, it's easier. Right. Not easy. It's easier to be a stick in the mud dramatic actor like Sir Picard. <laughs> but real comedy is hard. It's harder than dramatic acting. That's what's so. Okay, that's a, a side for another day. We're not doing Shakespeare. Today. <laughs> We're not doing Forget Shakespeare. It. I already did literacy. Even though, even though Patrick Stewart is, of course, well known for his Shakespeare roles, we'll get there. We, we will, have 138 more episodes to talk about. We will certainly get there. Before I move on to talking about the actual plot of this episode, since we haven't quite gotten there yet, I did want to mention something you mentioned earlier, which is, of course, DeForest Kelly's cameo. He was aged up, obviously, for this role because it's supposed to be 70 years after 
The Undiscovered Country, which hadn't come out yet. So that's some really fun mental gymnastics there. But what did you think about this? I feel this? like he's nearly unrecognizable. You didn't recognize him at first. No, I didn't. Despite the fact that there's that joke Worf makes about how he refuses to be beamed up because he's eccentric. I told you I retconned the original motion picture from my mind. Why would I get that joke? So Gene Roddenberry obviously wanted to create a closer tie between the two series by having DeForest Kelly on, but he didn't want to draw attention away, which I think is why he didn't ask William Shatner or Leonard Nimoy. They may not have wanted to, but... DeForest Kelly was game. Like he didn't have to be pressured into this at all. Apparently they offered him more money, but he only, he refused to take anything but the union minimum for this role because he just wanted to like, he said he wanted to give back to something that was really kind to him. I feel like they could have given him something better to do. Yeah, but I did love his interaction with Data and how he's like, so you're an android. (laughs) I just, I I feel like it was a blink and you missed it. Like, I, I just feel like, I will say, though, I think those fears are well-founded because, as we've talked about, it took three Kelvinverse movies for it to feel like they were doing something and not living in the shadow of, you know, Nimoy's Bach, right? Because not only is he a major character in the first one and appears in the second one, but that Zachary Quinto is, like, impersonating him. Right, exactly. And so, yeah. Their fears are well-founded because it happened Mm -hmm. later, but they could have done more and have it not be problematic. That was, I mean, like, if you think about the fact that DeForest Kelly got this little bit, Kirk meets Picard, I know this is true, and then you have Spock's redemption, not that he needed one, in in the Kelvinverse movies, This this is pretty bad. In comparison. Right. I feel like, though, the revelation that Bones is 137, that he, like, makes it to see the next generation. I mean, that's interesting to me, even though it's not developed at all. Although, there's definitely... Damn it, Data, I'm a geriatric, not a doctor. (laughs) I will say, it is kind of funny, his, like, whole, we have androids in Starfleet now? It's definitely a, like, when I was a kid, we used to walk both ways up a hill. You know, just I, I want to say something really quick here before you move on. If your walk to school is long enough, you will probably go uphill both ways at some point. <laughs> at some point. So I always found that weird. Okay, so let's actually talk about the plot of this episode, which most of this episode or double episode is dedicated to character work. So it's not like this has a ton of plot to it. But we do get introduced to another character, the antagonist of this double episode, who is... And, and the antagonist of... This this kind of character is the antagonist to many of our lives. Many of our lives. But he's also... An, he, this is an antagonist that will show up again and again. He's a recurring character on the show. Of again. course, we're referring to Q, played by John DeLancey. And, and if you've ever had a theater kid as a nemesis in your life... You don't need to watch this. You already know exactly what happens. Aren't theater kids most other theater kids' nemeses? Yes. Is this why Patrick Stewart was given a theater kid nemesis? Makes sense, doesn't it? Because he's a theater kid. Yeah. Ugh. You also, while we were watching Talented, this. but insufferable. 
<laughs> kind of like Wesley, but worse. While we were watching this, you also referred to Q as Star Trek Riddler. Do you want to <laughs> expound on that statement? <laughs> <laughs> Frank Gorshin Riddler, to be clear. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He of the original series. And by original series, I mean Star Trek and Batman. <laughs> no, Q is is like, you know, I, I joke about the drama kid not having been friends with several of them. So, I mean, you know, it's it's fine. They're the ones who are always trying to make things super dramatic, which makes sense when you think about it. But, like, no perceived slight is too mundane to, like, completely go to an 11. And that's the way the Riddler is characterized by Frank Gorshin, too. He's just, like, you know, he's, like, manic, bouncing off the wall, energy, just everything is is elevated. Dude, take a breath. You know, my first exposure to Q is Old Man Q. From Picard right. season two. The, se- the season we haven't made it through yet. So I find this interesting on a, a variety of levels because you saw episodes of TOS. You know that it is actually a go-to plot in TOS to for the Enterprise to come up against an omnipotent being of some kind, right? And this feels like a rehash of that kind of plot in the pilot episode where they find this omnipotent being who can transform himself, can make alternate realities, right? They get whisked away to a trial that Troy assures us is real, not a dream or an illusion. But he's so much more memorable than the ones we've seen in TOS before. Two things on that. The first one is bold move of the Star Trek writing team to introduce a reoccurring antagonist in the pilot episode. Bold move. I don't know if they thought he was going to be reoccurring or not. They kind of hint it at the end, though. Right. Well, if they didn't think that, then bold move to bring your (laughs) pilot villain back as a recurring... Like, either way, it's a bold move. Somebody made a bold move at some point. And the other thing is, there is, uh, in the episode of The Simpsons, the Treehouse of Horror episode, where he sells his soul for a donut and has the trial in hell. And it's like, the writers of The Simpsons have credited the Monkees episode. It's either The Devil and or The Devil versus Peter Tork. That is credited as an inspiration. I believe that any episode of television that goes to the well of quote-unquote real trial in this way is going back to the monkeys, including this episode. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see it. I had not seen the monkeys episode until I think last year. Is that when we watched the show? But the whole point is the jury is historical personages. Right, exactly. So yeah, we get this this trial, which is a really big concept when it comes to Q. In fact, I don't know if you noticed this because you didn't know what it was referencing in Picard, but when Q shows up in Picard's house at the beginning of season two of Picard, he says the trial never ends. And that is a big part of this character is that Q is constantly, he constantly sees Picard as a representative of all of humanity and this idea that humanity is on trial constantly. It keeps having to prove itself in order to escape the crimes of its past. This is really heavy-handed because the A plot, this isn't even the A plot of the show. It's a frame. It's a frame. Or the B plot or both, which a frame B plot is an interesting idea. 
But the A story is about this Farpoint station, right? We'll talk about that, I know. But you did not need Q to make this episode happen. Maybe they needed it to fill out time to make it a TV movie, which is why it's really more the B plot. But it's also a frame narrative because the whole thing is that the issue with Farpoint without knowing any of the particulars of it becomes their de facto trial, which they which they pass and we'll get to. But Despite being insulted constantly by Q along the way. Right, which is fine. But the whole thing is that you know, mankind is is bad, and here are all these historical examples of that. And Picard says, yeah, but we grow as people, and we can't grow unless we have something to grow from. And Q's like, why don't you tell that to all the things you did mean things to? Which is a good point. But that's that that is uncomfortably close to the debate today with you know, that that acronym thing that makes white people feel bad. So, like, I, I'm an educator, so I can't say it out loud, as you know. But, you know, that's the whole point, right? Is that Q's point is y'all did bad stuff. Y'all should feel bad and probably shouldn't be alive, which is what the other side feels like they're being told to feel right now, right? And so Picard is the voice of reason then as now to say, no, we have to hold and respect and know our history, but we can use it as a point from which to improve. We shouldn't sweep it under the rug, but we shouldn't think that humanity's past necessarily determines its present and most importantly, its future, which is the entire thesis of Star Trek. So, I mean, this is like writing in, well, by the way, this is why we're doing this show. It's the whole thing. Let me explain it to you with this kooky character. It's not necessary. But, but I mean, that's the part that it plays. And this guy could have been a one-off and it would have been fine. I think we'll have, I think we really should say more about him the next time he reoccurs. Right. And but Q has an arc too. Right. I just want to put that out there. But the other thing about the trial is something that comes up in a lot of these trial narratives is a jury of your peers. And so Q chooses a point in time from the, the past and like, these are your peers. And no, they're not. That's kind of the point. Cause he's like, well, this is humanity, but that's not, those aren't my peers. Yeah. I think that this is a really interesting conversation that's going to continue as we go through this series before we move on to the last point of the podcast, I do also want to mention really quickly that I think it's funny that Q equates Starfleet and the Enterprise with humanity. This is something that we talked about in our episode on the Undiscovered Country, is that Starfleet still is very human-focused, even though it is an arm of the Federation, which is supposed to be this egalitarian blending of planets— but the crew of the Enterprise in the next generation, even though it's still mostly human, they still have more aliens on board than right. the original Enterprise did because you have Data, who's an android, and Worf, who's a Klingon, and Troy, who's half Betazoid. You know, there's all these like, it's just interesting that Q is like Starfleet bad because human bad. Right. And I, the other thing, too, is I, since this is now the second part of an episode, so it will come out after our discussion on the Hugos. And I will have mentioned it on that episode too. 
There are multiple pieces of science fiction going on today. So the, the Victories Greater Than Death series by Charlie Jane Anders, which was Hugo nominated in the um, Lodestar category for young adult fiction, is, is one. And Jupiter Ascending, which we talked about a few more weeks back, right, is the idea that while there are what we would call aliens, intelligent life, of all shapes and sizes and forms, this narrative keeps coalescing around the idea that humanoid bipeds are the dominant form of life throughout the galaxy. And that is a that is, you know, part and parcel of it's easier to cast a human to play a human than it is something right. else. Right. I mean part of its Look production constraints. But now but in the in the recent years, it's become a narrative in the two works that I mentioned, where humanity or humanity adjacent has an unfair advantage in the galaxy. Because it's it's a hegemonic thing. It's a it's a thing where humans or humanoid bipeds are exerting their will over every other life form. And so, you know, that is, and that comes back to what we were talking about here with Starfleet. Starfleet is nominally not solely the province of biped humanoids, but it sure looks that way. Right. And we'll explore that, of course, throughout this series and other series as well. The last thing that I wanted to talk about, since we're already like at an hour now for the second episode, is, of course, the main plot encounter at Farpoint Station, which is this idea that the Bandy, we discover, have created this station seemingly overnight. They won't a- a- answer any questions about how it happened, but it turns out they've been imprisoning this life form that converts energy into matter, much like a transporter does. And they are attacked by the mate of this alien. And so, like, this is all part of the trial, is them freeing this this creature and allowing it to rejoin its mate. What did you think about this particular storyline in and of itself and as part of the trial, but also what did you think about Groppler Zorn, who's played by Michael Bell? I mean, TNG is clearly interested in carrying forward the guest star as alien creature. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really all I have to say about that. I mean, this is, I mean, you could say a little bit more about his character is very, I was just following orders adjacent. I think what the most important and interesting thing about the A story of this episode is that it is the, I think, sci-fi horror story. I'm not going to call it a trope because I think it's a story. Okay. But it's the, I think it is, I mean, we've seen the lottery. So it's not always sci-fi horror, but I mean, considering there's a nominated work in this year's Hugo's, that is this story. You see it so often is the one living being sacrificed, you know, and living in unimaginable pain and slash or suffering to make everyone else's life better. That is a, that's the left hand of darkness all the way up. It's the child in Omulus, right? It's the ones right. who it's walk the, away from it's the, Ursula Le Guin, it's the Ursula Le Guin story, the short story, all the way up. We just keep doing it over and over and over again. And so, you know, what better way to start this show than use it? But that's what it is. Well, and Strange New Worlds actually adapted 
you know, sort of adapted the ones who walk away in Omulus in their most recent season as well. I mean, literally, there's a child who right. is sacrificed for right. the good of the society. I mean, it's not always a child. Sometimes it's an adult. Right. But I mean, it is Prometheus, right? It it's it predates science fiction. You know, Prometheus as the you know, the one who went up and grabbed fire for the humans and was punished forever for it. In a really creative way. I have to admit, those Greeks right. knew how to come up with some creative torture. Well, I mean, that's why Frankenstein is called the modern the Prometheus. The modern Prometheus, yeah. I think that this storyline, like you said, it is something that's told over and over again, but it doesn't get any less poignant, especially because this narrative is used to excuse so many undressed things in our society like the idea of won't you think of the children or you know we have to sacrifice this person for the good of society that that's a real thing and it doesn't matter how many times science fiction points out that that's bad right it keeps happening well we just as you know we we watched the eternals this morning which has a the next door neighbor storyline which is this sacrifice is necessary so that fictional, un- not living, hypothetical people might live. Yeah, won't you think of the unborn? Right. I mean, this yeah. is this is very like you get into these questions of is one person suffering worth this? Well, if it was a binary choice, I guess that'd be a decent conversation to have. But no, you actually don't have to do this to ensure humanity's benefit. Right. Like theoretical like it's, it's, lives. It's, it's, it's slavery or we can't have this. Well, that's not true. That's a lie that capitalism tells you. Right. You the- theoretical lives are not as important as real lives. <laughs> right. And false binaries often put us in the position to make choices that we shouldn't have to make. And those those two tropes, those are tropes, fit hand in hand. Sometimes they are treated hand in hand, but but I mean, this is this is one of those things. And I don't know that it's ever really explicitly explored. The problem is solved, but I don't think the philosophy behind it is particularly explored in this pilot. And I'm not saying it needs to be, but it wasn't. Well, part of it's because we don't know that this has happened until the very end of the episode because right. they're trying to figure it out as part of their trial. Right. It's the reveal. What did you think about the jellyfish aliens that that this is? Because, yeah, they're like these giant space jellyfish, and they're really beautifully done, I think. You know, I think we saw alien jellyfish sex on the screen. Like, I think (laughs) we just, we saw it. I think that... It's the first X-rated Star Trek. I think it was. And and as I recall, you joked when I said that, because they leaped away right after that. Um, you were like, oh, nope, now they're going to have sex. I'm like, no, they already did. They're going off camera to do the hardcore stuff. <laughs> they have some catching up to do, y'all. <laughs> All right. I think we've talked enough. We've talked this pilot episode episodes to death. We have talked about the episode longer than the episode. That is absolutely true. Which is true. the recapper's dream. The last thing that I want to ask is... I you. If you can think all the way back to when you <laughs> watched this. So there's the original unaired pilot that was repurposed into the menagerie. So it was the cage and it was repurposed into the menagerie. But the real pilot, the second pilot of TOS was Where No Man Has Gone Before. Can you remember that episode? No. It's the episode where Kirk's best friend gets ESP and becomes a god real fast and starts torturing people on the ship. Kind of. Okay. Insofar as you can remember that, uh-huh. 
How does that pilot compare with this one? This is better. Okay. I mean, this this pilot has a lot of faults. It's trying to do too many things, which they thought they could get away with because it was double length. But I think, as I have shown in this paper, I have shown <laughs> that all three of these things were done poorly. But the TOS pilot is the other brand of pilot. The, the okay, not, you can't use that first one. Try again. Well, now that we have a running start, we'll make it more like a regular episode. And so it'll give you a better idea of the flavor of the show, which really doesn't work. Like pilots are just weird and you need to lean into that idea and say, this is what our show is. This is what we're going to do. These are who the characters are. You should want to come back. And that, as odd as it is of a genre, is more important than trying to make a pilot that's just like every episode. And God forbid, it is not. A pilot is not the first part of a 12-hour movie. Okay, I can't resist asking you one more question. Can you actually tell me what your favorite pilots are? Like, what are the pilots that stick out in your mind? Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks is the best pilot of all time. Okay. Um, Because it most, it does the best job of what I defined a pilot as being earlier. ER. That's a really good pilot. That's a great pilot. Alias. Okay. That's a very good pilot. Lost. Yeah, I would agree. Very good pilot. I would agree with that. Yeah, I think the X Files is a solid pilot. Uh, Those are the ones that come to mind right now. I mean, that's a decent list. One of my favorites that I mean, I agree with everything you just said, but one of my favorites that I've ever seen is actually the Star Wars Rebels pilot, which is a damn good pilot. Yeah, I was I was thinking about comedies. I wouldn't so. Thinking about Frasier and it doesn't work. I mean, it's not, it's fine. Um, I mean, yeah, most pilots of good shows are fine. Sometimes but, they're bad. But How I Met Your Mother. How I Met Your Mother has also a has a really good pilot. Because it does, it does what it sets out to do. And it uses, I mean, you know, it uses a frame better at some points than others. But like the fact that they're able to establish a frame for the entire series Show us how the series is going to play out and basically tell us what we need to know in the pilot. You know I hate the Lost finale. I'm right about that. And I believe history will judge me correct. (laughs) I also think the How I Met Your Mother finale is good. And history has proven me correct on that because if you go back and watch the pilot, you have been told everything you need to know. Whereas with Lost, they changed their minds. Yeah, I mean, and you convinced me on the How I Met Your Mother thing when we rewatched it, so I absolutely agree. Okay, we have talked enough, so... <laughs> and also, I made people mad. They're, they're, they're telling me now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we listened to two, you listened to two hours, and you were like, Sam hasn't made me mad all week. Well, just wait. Just wait. It's always at the end. All right, let's get out while we can. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris9, and you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Please join us in the following weeks for more episodes of Sam Watches Star Trek. Next week, we are discussing the season one episodes, The Naked Now and Where No One Has Gone Before. Until next time, live long and prosper.